Well, as it indicates on the blackboard, I intend to return this morning to our consideration of the theme of, of covenant. <clears throat> and um, really, I'm concerned to regulate our, my thinking on this subject by the light of the Word of God. And um, there's, a certain, um, there's a certain way of studying Scripture and coming to biblical understandings that highly prizes what's called the... Um, the reading of the scriptures with the great tradition. The idea that we don't read the scriptures just as if we're the first uh, generation that's co- has, whose eyeballs have cast upon God's word. We understand that we interpret the scriptures uh, really along with the rest of the church and its history. Um, but sometimes it's that notion of reading with the great tradition that sometimes in inhibits us from fresh evaluation of exactly what the Word of God is, is, is saying because we're, we're part of a tradition. We're part of a way of reading. Um, from the time of the Reformation, we stand in that Reformed tradition. From the time of the Council of Nicaea, a great Trinitarian tradition. Um, and um, those things were helpful in articulating aspects of biblical truth that um, we owe a great deal to. But not everything that the great tradition has enunciated is vital to this great tradition is equal. Not all of it's equal. Not everything's the Trinity. Not everything is justification by faith. And we tend to make it that way. We tend to make everything to be as crucial as everything else. And it's really not. And I think with this whole question of the covenants, because it's something that did come late in time. I know there's people that deny it. They say, no, no, no. It goes all the way back to the apostles. It goes all the way back to the early church. Find it. Find the notion that there are three basic covenants that God has enacted in the world. One that's an eternal covenant with his son. One that is a pre-fall covenant with Adam in the garden. And one that is a universal covenant from all times and all seasons. That it's hard to know exactly who God made that with. Sometimes it's with Christ and sometimes it's with the people. But anyway, that's called the covenant of grace. And that's what covenant theology is. And that developed, as we said, in the 17th 17th century. And it developed in large measure out of a concern to have have a a structure, to have a a way of seeing the word of God that would bring in divine sovereignty and human responsibility all in one fell swoop. But we, we, we looked at that. We said those things. And the reason I'm only reminding you of that is because I came across something um, in, in, on my Facebook account. And uh, I tried with my Facebook account, and this time that I've come back to Facebook, to stay out of all the nonsense that goes on in the world today. And I, I tried to cook up with theologians, people that are actually doing serious work in the Word of God. And not many of them are on Facebook, but a lot of them are. And there's one in particular who I respect a lot, and he's one who talks a lot about reading with the great tradition. Um, He actually has a a podcast. And in this podcast, he was going to discuss some of these things we've discussed about, quote, covenant theology, unquote. And his remark was how important covenant theology was for a whole list of other concerns. It's important for the doctrine of the Trinity. It's important for the doctrine of divine sovereignty. It's important for the doctrine of on and on and on. He had a whole list of things. It's when we see this doctrine of the covenants, then we see all these things in the proper way. 
And I'm saying to myself, well, what did the church do prior to the 17th century? We seem to have gotten along without this covenant theology thing to define the doctrine of the Trinity ably and well. And to me, the important thing is not what the theologians have said about the covenants, because they've not agreed with one another on the point at any rate. Um, you could look at the different streams of even Reformed theology, and they all have their take on the covenant uh, idea. And uh, you have some that say, no, we have this kind of covenant theology, and others say, we have this brand of covenant theology, and some says, no, we have this brand of covenant theology. You have the Dutch covenant theology, the Southern Presbyterians, you have the Princeton theologians, you have the 1689 guys. Oh, sorry? 1689 federalism. Everybody has their brand of the thing. And (laughs) so what do you do? When everybody has their version of this covenant theology, I'd say, well, listen to it, Benefit as you can from it, but let's get back to the Bible and kind and, and see what does Scripture say about this theme of covenant. And we've endeavored to do it, and I haven't really worked it out as fully as I probably have at this point today, so that I actually have an outline on the bulletin board. And what we basically have done is we have endeavored to look at the theme of covenants in the book of Genesis, the covenants that the book of Genesis addresses. Because that's where the theme first comes into play. comes into play after the flood. As uh, God sees the nature of man is still what it was prior to the flood. The very intense of his heart is evil continually. And uh, you would think, well, that would mean we're going to have uh, a repetition of the flood. Uh, I thought we were going to have it this morning when I came out here. <laughs> Quite a lot of rain fell. But thankfully, it wasn't a universal flood. Thankfully, it stopped. And I haven't seen a rainbow yet, but there probably will be one later. Um, because I think we get some more rain. But anyway, when the sun comes out, we're going to get rainbows. So um, we're going to see the fact that God has pledged that there's going to be basic continuity. Pers- uh, there's going to be um, continuance of this world. Uh, and so it's a covenant that promises some measure of regularity and perpetuity of human existence until the end comes. Okay, So we're not going to have a flood every uh, uh, five or six generations or ten generations. So, And that's something that is, is, is not something that God needs. God doesn't need to know. He does not intend to bring another flood. But, you know, when you bring a flood upon the human race in that devastating way that he did, and the ark dwellers come out of the ark, well, maybe they need some assurance. Maybe they need some kind of confidence. Maybe they're filled with a certain sense of uncertainty. And I think that's what you find in the biblical covenants. They arise when there is an issue of uncertainty or an issue of distrust. When Abraham says to God, how may I know that these things shall be? And again, he should have known. God said it. He should have said that settles it, as we say today. But yet he says, how shall I know? And God gives another layer of assurance. And so this matter of a covenant meets human beings in the midst of our uncertainty, in the midst of possible distrust, to affirm that the promises of God are, are as good as God's own being. God can sooner go out of existence before his covenants will fail in terms of their promises. These are oath-sworn promises that God gives. And they can be banked upon. But you you not only see these covenants that God makes with man in the book of Genesis, you also see covenants that 
men are making with other men. Uh, uh, you have um, Isaac making a covenant with Abimelech, and I believe it's chapter 26 of the book of Genesis. Uh, you have um, Jacob making a covenant with Laban. Uh, so you have these human covenants that arise. And again, I would say they arise in conditions where there is strife and conflict. And it's meant to address these conditions of strife and conflict that comes between people. So that um, they're peace treaties in a real sense. They're God's, there's people saying, we won't be at war with one another. Um, Isaac enters, uh, uh, Jacob enters into a covenant with Laban and says, well, here's the, the point where you don't pass over this point, I don't pass over that point, and we don't go to war with each other. There was a condition of strife and conflict between Laban and Jacob, and this covenant settles it. They set out the terms. They say, this is what we will do. And um, Jacob gets to go free with the you know, the household goods that he took and uh, all the things that he took from his years in, La- in Paddan Aram, laboring for Laban with his daughters and his grandkids, and Laban doesn't come after him because this covenant was established between the two in the context of strife and of conflict. And I think that's true of divine covenants as well. They are divine peace treaties. They come, again, in the context of the flood, God says human sin has become so great he regrets that he even made man upon the earth he's going to destroy them God comes as a warrior at war with an apostate humanity for their transgressions and he brings a flood and destroys them but then he does something interesting he makes a covenant sign. So I put here covenant signs. We've not really discussed them that much, but I think the covenant signs really have to do with the nature of the covenant itself. When God enters into a covenant of preservation of the human race, having, well, not so much throw thunderbolts from heaven, maybe lightning bolts from heaven that preceded the rain, but the earth breaking up and the flood waters inundating the earth... That was God coming as a warrior. And when warriors fight in the ancient world, they come with their implements of war that includes their arrows that they shoot from their bows. And the word that speaks of the bow that God placed in the sky, that we call a rainbow, is God basically saying, I'm done with the war. The war will not eventuate in this kind of thing happening again. And so the the bow of warfare that would destroy the human race because of its apostasy and its sin and its violence and all the other things the flood generation was guilty of, God says I'm taking that bow that I used coming at warfare with the human race and now it's going to be a rainbow in the sky and again it's not for God's sake God knows he's not going to bring the storm again but it's that men would know when we see that rainbow this is not God coming with warfare this is God establishing conditions of peace with the human race so that there is this regularity of, of, of seasons and of, of harvests and of um, d- days and years and times and seasons. These will continue until the end. And so it has reference to 
the covenant itself, that covenant of preservation, the war bow becomes the rainbow because this is a covenant of peace. This is a covenant of preservation and not destruction. And then you have the covenant that God makes with Abraham. And what's that covenant concerning? Well, we know it concerns the blessing. That God says, blessing, I will bless you, and then through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. There's the reinstitution of the creation blessing. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What does God say to Abraham? He says, I will bless you, and you know what? You can have a progeny as numerous as the stars of the heavens and the sand of the sea. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So this was a this was a covenant of of, of um, progeny, of descent, of descendants, of a seed, of the promised seed. You'll have a son. You'll have an heir. And the heir won't be Eliezer of Damascus. It'll be the heir that will come through Sarah. God's going to give a specific heir. So this is a covenant that speaks of procreation. And what does God do with respect to that covenant of procreation? He gives a sign of the thing. And this sign is circumcision. Again, that's how procreation comes about. It's in the male sexual organ that that cutting back of the foreskin of the flesh takes place. So that every male of Israel would know that God kept his promise. There's progeny. There is this great multitude that no man can number that's being born of Abraham's seed. Abraham's seed has this great progeny. And every male member, every male Israelite knows he's part of that promise of that progeny. That Abraham, whose body was as good as dead, God was going to give an ability for him to have children. And for him to give seed to Sarah, and to, you know, seed is funny in the, in the Hebrew and in the Greek. I think it's the very word for seed that speaks of progeny. It also speaks of the sperm that produces the progeny. And so, God says He, he gives him the ability, the seed to plant the sperm into the womb of his wife to bear a child, and it's in the foreskin of the flesh that that sign of the covenant is given this covenant of procreation this covenant of a seed this covenant of this great multitude uh, that you can't number Uh, God says that's going to be the sign of this relationship between me and you and then it's an interesting thing that when Israel enters into the land of promise in the book of Exodus we're told that it's there's another sign There's a sign of the Sinaitic Covenant, or the Mosaic Covenant sometimes it's called, the covenant that God made with them at Mount Sinai. And you know what that sign is? Interestingly enough, it's the sign of the Sabbath. It's the sign of the Sabbath rest. Which is strange, because the Sabbath rest was what God did at creation. But it's an interesting thing that in chapter 5 of Exodus, when the first giving of the law from Sinai is spoken, and the reason is given as to why God gave the Sabbath day, it says, or why they're to keep it and, and keep it holy, he says, for in six days the Lord created the heavens and the earth, and the seventh day he rested. Therefore, the Lord commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. But when you come to the book of Deuteronomy, there's another reason that's given. Same command, and yet Moses understands this is a covenant that God has made with the nation of Israel. And this matter of Sabbath rest that he enters into at creation has an implication for this people whom God has entered into covenant with. 
And that is, he's going to bring them into the land of rest in Canaan. They enter into the rest of God. Psalm 95, he says, they will not enter into my rest, one generation, but the next generation enters into the rest. And you read through the book of Joshua, and the land had rest, and the land had rest, and the land had rest. And so that was the place of the rest of God. That was the place where Israel was to, to enjoy fellowship and communion with God in their midst, just as Adam did in the Garden of Eden, enjoying the presence of God and walking with God in the cool of the day. God said to Israel, I will walk among you, and I will bring you into my rest. And so the covenant that had to do with the land grant that was going to bring Israel into the land has rest as its covenant sign. You see, the signs, they do have relationship, I think, clearly, to the nature of the covenant itself. And so when you think of the, cov- of, 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 uh, the sign of the new covenant, if you think of it in terms of a sign and a seal, like uh, Paul says, circumcision was to, to Abraham, or a- Abraham uh, for us in the new covenant, it's, it's the sign of baptism. It's a sign that pictures union with Christ. It pictures participation with Jesus in death, burial, and resurrection. And an element that provides cleansing. And so that's, you know, it it relates to the promise of forgiveness. It relates to the promise of newness of life. The promise of salvation that comes through faith in Christ, in union with Christ, in his death, burial, and resurrection. So you see how the signs relate to the nature of the covenant itself. And so you have these covenants, and each of these covenants have their purpose. And the purpose is to deal with the question of strife and conflict. And there's something that's interesting. I never noticed it before, but I I may have said something about it in in previous weeks, but I, I don't recall. I'm thinking this is a new idea, but it may not be. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, this is what I'm getting to here. I'm getting to this now. It says, uh, circumstances without covenant. Circumstances without covenant. And what I'm meaning to say here is there were circumstances where covenant came into play and circumstances that were very similar where covenant never came into play. Now, we've, we've said that there was a covenant that Isaac made with Abimelech, also one that Abraham made earlier on with another Abimelech, that, that was the king of Gerar. And um, you remember the reason that covenant was entered into? Anybody? I believe it's chapter 26 of Genesis, or maybe it's 27. But uh, let's look. This covenant that Isaac made with Abimelech he goes down to Gerar and um, yeah, look at uh, verse 17. Isaac departed from there. There was a point in which Abimelech says, get away from me. And 
You know, you're greater than me. You're mightier than we. That's, I think, in verse 16. Go away from us, he says. Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. This is not a situation of confidence and trust, is it? Go away from me. I'm, I'm afraid of you. You've gotten too too great. And he's, though he's the king of Gerar, Isaac has uh, his servants and uh, he has uh, great prosperity. He has gained uh, much, become very wealthy, had possessions of flocks and herds, we read in verse 14. Well, Isaac departs from there. He camps in the valley of Gerar and settled there. Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And then he gave them certain names. And then it says in verse 20, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, the water's ours. And then he filled up the well, and then he had to dig it again. And so what do you find happening? We're finding that there was conflict. There was strife between two parties. One was the king of the place. He had his herdsmen with his flocks and his uh, sheep, and um, they needed wells, they needed water. And Isaac had grown wealthy, and he had his flocks, and they needed water, and the scarcity of water in, uh, in this desert region. And so they have to dig the wells. And when they dig the wells, they want those wells to feed their flocks. But now there's strife. And so in verse 28, we see plainly, uh, the, this is what Abimelech uh, is saying, we see plainly that Yahweh's been with you, so he said, let there be a sworn pact between us. Between you and us, let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. And so they had a feast, they ate and they drank, they exchanged oaths and he sent them away. And so there was this covenant they entered into to establish conditions of peace in the midst of strife and quarreling and division over land and its resources. Now can you think of another example where there was a conflict over land and resources and how growing numbers of herd of, of flocks and herdsmen and need for water and need for the thank you Abraham and Lot same scenario that happens in chapter 13 now Abram was very rich in livestock in silver and in gold and he journeyed on from Negev that's the, the southern desert as far as Bethel uh, that's going toward the north where his tent had been at the beginning, uh, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar. And um, Lot, who was with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great they could not dwell together. And what do we find happening? There was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And yet as we read on, no covenant is made between Abraham and Lot. Covenant was made with Isaac and Abimelech. But it is the same kind of scenario. You understand what I'm saying? Same kind of scenario. Limited resources, growing wealth, growing flocks. The land can't sustain us both. What do you do? Well, why doesn't Abram enter into a covenant with Lot? And say, Lot, you go this way, I'll go that way. And uh, why do you think? Both 
both Christians. They're both Christians. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, they're both family. Lot's his nephew. They've traveled together. They've lived together. They know one another. And when this problem happens, Abraham says to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. We're kinsmen. We're not adversaries. We're not at war with one another, nor should we ever be. It's not the whole land before you. Separate yourselves from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. If you take the right, I will go to the left. Here is the older man, the uncle, saying to the younger man, you can have the first choice as to where you'd like to dwell. Of course, he sees the... Jordan Valley, and then he sees it's like the Garden of God, and so he chooses the, the best. And, and But Abraham is okay with that. Why? It's his nephew. He wants his nephew to do well. They're kin. And so in, rela- in those relationships of kinship, even though there's the same practical problem, just as today there would be no contract that necessarily that a father and son would have when he comes into the business. The business should be his. But if the father gets into a relationship with someone outside the family, well, you're going to probably get a contract, get lawyers involved. But when it's family, you don't do that sort of stuff. Covenant comes into place, yes, where there is strife, but strife that will lead to conflict lead to something like the outbreaking of a war, which doesn't happen there. The strife's between the herdsmen. The strife's not between Abraham and Lot. It's his nephew. You have the situation later on with Jacob, having gone to Paddan Aram, Laban, changing his wages, he says ten times. Probably not actually ten times, but he changed it pretty often, and it's probably a good way to express in the ancient world the fact I've been gypped, cheated out of my wages many, many times, and you've not had any... Well, anyway, what happens? They enter into a covenant because there was distrust. And though it was family, it was not the same kind of family relationships. Because, number one, Jacob didn't grow up with Laban like... uh, Abraham did seeing Lot grow up. They didn't travel together. They weren't uh, uh, yoked together in the ways that Abraham was with Lot. Um, Jacob went to seek a wife. And Laban said, I'm the papa. Tradition. I'm going to tell you how this thing goes. Oh, you love Rachel. Okay, fine. That's good. Here, take Leah. And he doesn't say take Leah. He gives her Leah. He deceives him. He deceives him. And that sort of stuff went on again and again and again. And finally, Jacob says, well, I'm going to take what God's given me, how God's blessed me, and I'm going to go. And he doesn't even bother to tell the man. And what does Laban do? He comes after him. And he comes after him with his trained men, armed soldiers, he was looking probably to engage in some kind of conflict. And it was just the fact that Jacob had the presence of mind to call him down, to uh, speak about it, his children, what he did, how he had gypped him, all these. He persuaded him. And he persuaded him to not just desist from strife and conflict, but to ensure that that would not arise again by solemnizing a commitment not to be at war with one another with a covenant. But now at the end of the trip, what happens? 
Jacob comes to meet who? Hmm? Yeah, it was. It was Esau. Esau. He fled from Esau. Esau was hot and angry. This is the man who stole my birthright. He stole the blessing. And uh, likely if he got in his hands on him at one point, he might have, had, out of anger, actually have killed him. That was He had a murderous intent. And uh, Rachel understood that. He, uh, she says, go. Go. Go to my relatives. Um, but there was the passage of, of time, seven years for, for Rachel. Uh, he got Leah instead, seven years for, um, for Rachel. He got Leah first, then Rachel, and then seven further years, I think, with the matter of the, the, the flocks and how he attained wealth. So some 20 years had gone by. And after 20 some odd years, I mean, Esau is a, is a maturing man. He has a family. He has children himself. He probably at one point has long forgotten Jacob, except for maybe remembering him growing up and saying, where's that, uh, you know, that uh, guy that would, couldn't ever get him to go out with me to hunt. <laughs> couldn't ever get him to be interested in the things that I was interested in. That homebody who sat around cooking pottage. <laughs> and uh, anyway, he probably had some thoughts about Jacob that weren't murderous, that weren't hostile, that had to do with memories of growing up. And when you would think with Jacob meeting uh, Esau, and, and remember he separated his, his, his family into two groups of people so that if he got pursued by one, they could flee the other way. He wasn't about to lose the entirety of his family to what he thought was the murderous intent of Esau. And what happens? He comes to Esau, and what does Esau do? He falls upon his neck. He embraces him. He speaks words of peace, words of love, words of desire that he would come to Mount Seir and, and, and see how God has blessed me. And so they enter into some sort of a peace relation with one another, just like he did with Laban, but with Esau, there's no need for a covenant. He doesn't make a covenant, even though there was a similar set of circumstances. Why? Well, because probably strife was long gone. Conflict was long over. And this was his brother. This was his brother who he grew up with. They had common parentage. They had common. What's the matter? You, you lost something down there. Is that your microphone? Yeah. Common parentage, uh, common experiences, and ultimately a, a, a mutual love, a mutual regard for one another that did not require covenant. So I think that helps to enforce the idea that when covenants are enacted in the scriptures, there is this matter of uncertainty and distrust. Laban could not trust. I'm sorry, Jacob could not trust Laban. He probably could trust Esau, his brother. Um, Abraham trusted Lot, and Lot trusted Abraham, but uh, Isaac could not trust Abimelech, and Abimelech probably couldn't trust Isaac. And so there was a need for covenant to solemnize the arrangements so that people would realize we have responsibilities to one another we cannot violate. Even though everything in us would say, I want to violate this thing, you swear a covenant so you don't do it. So it solemnizes the peace treaty. You don't go back to warfare. You don't go back to conflict. You don't go back to a relationship of, mis- of where it's, everything's uncertain once again. 
the ceasefire holds because of a covenant. Okay? So I think that's what you have in the book of Genesis. So when you see the book of Genesis and these covenants enacted, uh, again, there are oath-sworn promises that come when conditions of uncertainty and distrust come about, such as the flood generation needing to know God's not going to bring another flood, such as Abraham needing to know this word from God is going to come true, even though I'm hitting my 90th year and Sarah as well, and uh, just doesn't seem humanly possible that we're going to conceive children at this point. And uh, we're looking for all the ways to do the thing, but God says, no, it's through, it's through Sarah that this promise will come. And God gives this covenant and this covenant of procreation. Yes, you will have a son. These covenants with the human covenants also addressing the problem of distrust and of strife. Any questions? Does anybody see anything else in the book of Genesis and the passages that I've alluded to that I missed? I really tried to find what I could in the way of trying to understand these, these things. Does this all make sense to you? And again, that's why I don't think that at creation there was a covenant made with Adam. Because Adam was the son in God's household. And there was no sin that would lead Adam to distrust the promises of God. I know Greg Nichols says there was perhaps an, an unawareness of, of, um, of what death would involve and God had to really accentuate that. I believe he did accentuate it, but I don't necessarily think he accentuated it in terms of a covenant. Because again, these elements that I think are vital of uncertainty and distrust and strife and conflict were not present in the Garden of Eden. Yes? Um, no, I mean no, no new covenant. I mean there is a new covenant that Jesus sealed in His own blood, but no, of course the, before, before time that God made covenant. Yeah, there will be no new promises that God will give with respect to uh, the new heavens and new earth. It needs to be sealed with an oath, with some kind of a ceremony in the way of cutting pieces of animals apart, or in the way of a covenant meal or some solemnization of this, of, of this commitment and pledge. No, there won't be any need for that. And, and why would there be? Why would there be? God will be in the midst of the New Jerusalem. <laughs> and uh, his presence will be known, and his presence will be amidst those who, um, uh, are, those who are, are righteous. They're the, 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 the spirits and bodies of, the, of those who have been perfected in God's presence so there won't be a need because there won't be distrust and, and there won't be strife and conflict I guess I didn't ask that right but aren't there people that say that in eternity previously before before you know eternity past that God made a covenant with his son yes yeah but they that, but that's not a yeah I don't know why God would make a covenant with Jesus along those lines I mean I mean, God is a God of eternal plan and purpose. Um, and I think an eternal plan and purpose that they make, you know, again, we can, we can take that eternal plan and purpose and look to humanize it as if they sat down at the table and they said, well, now you do this and you do this and you do this and you. We're talking about God now. We're not talking about a bunch of guys. That, uh, this is not the, the Council of Versailles or this is not the, the United Nations. This is, this is God decreeing his eternal plan and purpose 
And yes, it involves the three persons of the Trinity who are God. The God of eternal plan and purpose. But the kind of thing that they speak of in terms of what they call the pactum salutis, the plant, the uh, pact of salvation, the covenant of salvation in eternity. Again, I don't see the need for it. There's no distrust or strife between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's no need to swear this thing with an oath. So what did <laughs> I think either view of the lapsarianism that you take, I just don't see why in eternity between the three members of the Trinity there would be need for this concept of covenant when it's a peace treaty with those sworn pledges meaning to meant to allay the fears of, 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 of the parties. We're going to do what we claim to, we're going to do and we solemnize it with these oaths and these ceremonies that uh, uh, help to so- why would that? Why would God need that? Again, I don't know why God needs covenant. We need covenant. God, covenant is God's condescension to us. Our needs, not his needs. I mean, to me, that makes... To me, I, I see that crystal clear. Why my brethren think otherwise, I, I, I have not been convinced for the, re, the reason for it. But they, but they hold to it and... They seem to say that they think there's, the Bible supports it, but I've not seen the passages that support it. I think everything that they, that they advance as supporting this idea can be well explained just in terms of a sovereign God working out his plans and purposes in accordance with his own will. Not in accordance with uh, a framework of covenant that he's established. I, I don't see that. That's the missing element that's not there. A plan, purpose, counsel, all there. All there. It's in the biblical words. This other stuff is not there. And why we need the other to support the counsel and the plan and the decree, I, I don't know. But that's what, they, that's what they're telling me. We need this pactum salutis, this plan of salvation, this pact of salvation with the, the, the Trinitarian members. They, they say we need it to support the Trinity. We need it to support the decree. We, no, you don't. I mean, you might think you do, but I don't know why. It doesn't seem to me that the Bible needs it to support those ideas. I know. They tell me I'm, I can't join their clubs any longer. <laughs> uh, I had some guys who, uh, I, we, you know, we, we got involved with a, a group, a national group of churches. And um, when I joined, uh, they said, well, what disagreements do you have with our confession of faith? I said, chapter 7, <laughs> which is on the covenants. Now, I didn't have the clarity of my understanding of the thing then that I had now. But I, I said, look, I think this statement's confusing. It, it, it seems to bring in divine counsel, uh, human responsibility in ways that I can't make a heads or tails out of what that sentence is saying. Who God's made the covenant of grace with. It seems like he's made it with sinners, but then he's made it with you know, promising someone to give the Holy Spirit to those that believe. But he's giving the covenant to those who will believe. Wait a minute. It's, if the covenant is made with those who will believe, has the covenant provided promise that they will believe? You see the confusion there. If I say to you, I'll enter into a covenant with you if you believe me, if you trust me. Say, sure, 
Pastor, I trust you. I'll enter a covenant with you. If you need a covenant, sign. I'll sign under the covenant. So yeah, but I need to do something to make sure that um, Tim will believe. Well, you've already said you're going to believe. <laughs> you can trust me. You'll enter into the covenant. Why would I need that other? Th- the, the, both of those things are there in the statement in our confession of faith. And I, I don't get it. Very confusing. So I, I brought up some of those things. I said, I think it really does need to. I said, you look, our, our statement about the covenant doesn't even define what a covenant is. How could that be a complete statement if it's not defining what a covenant is? So anyway, we were received. I, I was up front. I said, I don't uh, believe. Uh, I, I would change it, I would radically change chapter 7 of the London Baptist Confession of Faith. I know, heresy, heresy. Tar and feather me, burn me in oil, all those things. But uh, that's, that's, you know, I believe I, 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 I subscribe to the Confession of Faith in the general things it says. If there's 30 statements, at least 27 I, I think are pretty, pretty good. But none of them, I would say, can't be improved upon in some way, or it's the last word. I don't think in the 17th century they were thinking it's the last word. I think if you got the Baptist guys in London in 1688, uh, when William of Orange came to the throne and the Baptists could come out of hiding, and uh, in 1689 they put together the Baptist Confession of Faith, I think if you said to those Baptist guys, um, hey, look, uh, you sure everything you've said here is absolutely kosher down to the last comma and uh, an exclamation point? <laughs> and they would have said, no. That wasn't what we were trying to do. We weren't trying to make a statement of faith that would last in, per- in perpetuity, never ever being changed by any successive generations. We don't think we have the last word on what God's truth is. I think they would have been humble enough to acknowledge that. One of the great leaders of the Puritans, then they came to England, John Robinson, um, famous uh, sermon that he preached. It was on the Arabella. I, I'm always confused at which boat carried which people where, but I think it was on the Arabella when the Massachusetts Bay Colony came over to the Massachusetts Bay. Their, their pastor, that's the one where Reagan got the idea of the city set on a hill. I mean, it's in the Bible, but um, that's what John Robinson said about America. America will be the city set upon the hill. And uh, in that sermon, the same sermon, John Robinson said that he believed that God still had much truth to break forth from his word. But again, it's from his word. He's not saying we get some additional revelation somewhere else. It's from the word, but yet there are aspects of truth in the word of God we have not yet seen. And John Robinson said he believed God still had much truth to break forth from his word. Things we haven't seen that we will see. And let me tell you something. Nobody sees what they don't see. A blind spot is just that. It's a blind spot. It's something you don't see. And if you think you have the whole market of truth right between your two eyes, you're kidding yourself. I mean, God's word is God's word. And, and, and we've not understood it in all of its fullness and its entirety. If that were true, why are we still learning? Why, why, well, just go back and listen to messages we preached 10 years ago because we don't know anything more now than we do then. No, we do. And we should. 
This should be an enterprise where we are growing in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And again, there's much that we have settled as the church. We've settled the deity of Christ. We've settled the Trinity. Now we can fine-tune the way in which it's taught in the Scriptures, how it's taught in the Scriptures. And there were things that back in the 17th century people were saying were Trinitarian proofs that today we probably say, eh, I don't think so. But that doesn't mean the Trinity's not there. But it's clear that they worship Jesus as God. It's clear that Jesus manifested himself as, uh, as the God of Israel come in human flesh. That the, uh, the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. I mean, you just can't take the deity of Christ and place it in just, you know, several passages. It's really in throughout the length and breadth of the teaching of God's word. Um, so we don't have to really re-teach that or relearn that. We've learned it. We just learned different ways to understand it, but not different ways to articulate what is already pretty much settled truths. But covenant's not like that. That's why I said before, reading the scriptures with the great tradition has to recognize that not everything in the great tradition we have understood as clearly as we have some of the things we we have understood, like justification by faith, like the, the Trinity, like the deity of Christ, like the original sin, the reality of human depravity. I mean, we go back to the Augustinian Pelagian controversy, and we see they, they pretty much went over that ground with a fine-tooth comb. And though you know, there's aspects of it we can still add to it. Yet it's basically there. I don't think covenant is anywhere near like those other things. So anyway, that's just my understanding. That's why we're doing this. Now we're going to go from here, and we've got five minutes left, and we can't just can't can't uh, do that. Is we have to come into the Book of Exodus. The book of Exodus has a great deal to say on the subject of covenant, both arising out of the covenant God made with Abraham, because God comes to Israel to fulfill the promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But yet at Mount Sinai, there's something new that happens. God says, I will make my covenant with you, um, and you will be to me a kingdom of priests and um, a holy nation. And there's something in that covenant in which God engages with the nation at Mount Sinai that really does add to our understanding of what a, of what a covenant is. I mean, God's strife and conflict was not with the Israelites, although they might have had problems with believing God's own promises as they murmured in the wilderness time and time again. Um, but God came against the, against the Egyptians and he, he, it was the Egyptians that he brought the plagues upon. It was the Egyptians that he um, rescued them from. And um, that's an interesting kind of thing that God does that I think enters in to a certain kind of ancient covenant that we know about from archaeology called a suzerain covenant of, a, of an overlord who conquers uh, a great empire and he's the new, the new authority on the block. What happens to Israel when the Babylonians take over? What do they do? Uh, they're a client nation. They're a captive nation. They're under someone else's authority. Well, covenant is the thing that defines those political things between nations. It's also something that defines God's relationship 
to the nation of Israel. Almost down to the point where portions of the book of Exodus and portions of the book of Deuteronomy actually contain almost similar language to many of those ancient Near Eastern covenants uh, called suzerain covenants. So we'll explore that a bit, God willing, uh, next week. So any comments, questions before we conclude this morning? And yes, we will put on the air conditioner for morning worship. (laughs) Well, let's conclude then with prayer. Father, we're thankful we could be together to talk about these things this morning. We're thankful that the rain uh, abated and we're thankful we have access to the building. And Lord, we're thankful for the great realities of your truth. And we're thankful for the, 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 the goodness we derive from exploring the riches of Holy Scripture. We ask you now to be pleased to bless us as we greet one another this morning and have a time of fellowship. And Lord, pour out your spirit and your blessing upon the morning gathering as we would seek to come before your presence with thanksgiving and with praise as we would seek to explore once more the riches of Scripture, and as we come before the Supper of Remembrance, draw near with your presence and blessing, as we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.